You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Luke chapter 22. We're starting verse 14. Work our way to verse 20. Let me read it, and then I want to ask a blessing over the text. Luke 22. Verses 14 through 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that... From now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to pray before I preach any further. Join me. Father, we thank you for the Gospel of Luke. We are immensely privileged to have the opportunity to come and sit together and hear from, the, from your Word. Even if it was just quite simply the reading of your Word, we would be very privileged. There's many people throughout our world who do not have this privilege. So God, thank you for that. Thank you as well for the opportunity to preach your word. Lord, I'm well aware that every one of us in this room needs to hear the preaching of your word, needs our soul to be refreshed, our hearts to be challenged, our minds to be transformed by the preaching of your word. So God, I just ask that you would come and preach through the power of your spirit through me. And I pray that you would remove me from this pulpit, so to speak, and and just pray, God, that... um, You would not allow me to be a hindrance to what you have said clearly in your word and what you want to say as you apply it to us. I pray, God, that you would reorient our souls. Redirect our souls, Lord God. Redirect us to a place where we see our great need to just rehearse the gospel to one another and to you. And I pray that you would do that. And I pray that you would do that through the preaching of your word. Pray, God, that you would take the things that I've been thinking about deep down inside of my heart and my soul this week. I pray, God, that you would use them for your glory. Use them for your people here. Pray that you would use them to do good. Pray, God, that you would take the words of my mouth and that you would um, cause them to be acceptable in your sight. That they would, again, honor you, challenge us. I pray that you would help all of us in this room, everyone hearing this message, to um, either A, come to that place where we uh, trust in you as our rock and our redeemer, or help us to even just rest in you as our rock and our redeemer. That's who you are, and I pray that you would do that for us this evening. Help our hearts and our minds to be attentive to what you would say to us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. 
in your Bibles next to this passage. If you have a pen and you don't uh, feel strange about writing in your Bibles, here's what I want you to write in there. I want you to write the dress rehearsal for the soul next to this passage. Dress rehearsal for the soul. If you're a note taker, you can write that down. Dress rehearsal for the soul. Growing up, I grew up near a town, little town called Walton, Nebraska, uh, over by Lincoln, just outside of Lincoln, about seven miles or so. Grew up in a, a little white farmhouse in the country, top of a hill. We were poor, very poor. Duct tape on our shoes was the way we got new shoes. Didn't have conventional heat, conventional air conditioning in our home. Didn't have a TV most of the time. Dad left when I was five. Um, the way that we heated our house was with uh, firewood. My mom would take these old steel T-posts and we would pound them into the ground in a big circle and then we would put heat lamps on those T-posts and we put this big hydraulic wood splitter in the middle and uh, she would split these big stumps of wood that uh, tree companies would bring over and drop off for us and my sister and I would load up all the split firewood into wheelbarrows and wheel it up to the house dump it in the cellar door and as soon as the cellar was full then we would go downstairs in the basement unload the cellar stack it all up and start all over again this was the rhythm of our lives so to speak had to stock up enough firewood so that you could get through the winter so spring summer and fall were typically full of this type of activity this was the habit of our life, so to speak. You would catch us out there until midnight. My mom was a stinking slave driver, I will tell you. My mom would eat, sleep, and breathe, splitting firewood for months on end until our basement was full. You could tell what um, was the most important to her during uh, those months. The most important thing to her was taking care of our family and making sure that our house was heated. I was thinking about this, that this week in terms of this passage. And maybe just let me drop this on you, and then I've got another story or so I want to share with you, and then we're going to dive into the text. I'm hoping that this helps to kind of build some categories for us as we move forward. Because some of what I'm going to talk about tonight may be really brand new for most of us. Let me just kind of drop this as being um, kind of the big idea for tonight, if you will. I told you to write in your Bibles, dress rehearsal for the soul. One of the things that I have a real deep belief in, I think you can be proven theologically as you look throughout Scripture, and I think even experientially for all of us as human beings, is that you can tell a lot about what a person loves, wants, and longs for by the habits and the patterns of their lives. Tell a lot about what a person loves. Tell a lot about what a person wants, longs, desires, lives for. You can tell a lot about what's really going on deep within someone's soul by just simply observing the habits and the patterns of their lives. What do they do? What do they talk about? What consumes their time? What do you find on their schedule? You will learn a lot about what goes on in the activity of someone's soul just by observing those things. 
And so one of the things that I think I'd like to say, and I think I'll probably say it over and over and over again all night long, is what I think Jesus wants to do through the power of His Spirit through this passage tonight is I believe that He wants to reorient our souls. That He wants to redirect. That He wants to shift our souls. The reality is that deep within everyone's soul is what I think we could call a liturgy, so to speak. Uh, a liturgy is a word that gets used in more traditional churches. It doesn't get used often in Baptist churches as a word. But liturgies get used. So what a liturgy simply is, and you may be thinking, I cannot believe this dude's going to teach us about a word. I'm going to because I'm going to use it all night long. And I'm going to do it purposely because I want to create something for us to think about. A liturgy is simply, at its, at its probably its simplest form, it's just a bullet point checklist of things that you or I are going to do. In a Sunday gathering for a church, a liturgy is the order of the service, right? You start off with an opening song. You got somebody that comes up and reads a passage. You do four more songs or five, kind of depends, right? You do some announcements. Some dude with a beard gets up and preaches <laughs> for a long time. Everybody falls asleep. This is a liturgy, right? This is an order of service. And a liturgy is designed not simply just to keep everything in good order, because God is a God of order and that is important. Yes, that's not really the primary design of a liturgy of a service, though. The primary design and the primary purpose of a liturgy in a church is to reorient every person that walks in and sits down in community together back to the gospel again. Hear that? That's what the liturgy is purposed to do. It's not simply to keep everything in order, though that's important. I'm a super organized guy and I live by all sorts of bullet point checklists and liturgies. But the reason that we do this as a church is simply to reorient people's souls back to Jesus, back to the cross, back to the gospel again. And so I want you to think about this concept of liturgy, and I want you to take it now out of the church, and I want you to apply it to your own life a little bit. Every one of us lives a little bit by some organized process by which we do things. And the question for us is this. <clears throat> the question is, as you examine your soul, your heart, your spirit, tonight as you listen to this message, as you hear this being preached, as you think about this passage, tonight when you examine your soul, what is happening in the liturgical rhythms of your soul tonight? That's the big question all the way through. My sister, growing up, was a dancer. She uh, did jazz and tap and ballet. She loved dancing. And it was kind of like my mom's greatest dream was that my sister would become a fantastic dancer. And so I would spend... Uh, a couple of days, it seemed like, out of the week, in the evenings, typically sitting in the car or sitting in some side room hallway as my sister practiced her dance routine with her dance club. You can, you can probably tell that uh, I, I was really excited about this. 
Deep down inside my soul, I was really excited about this, right? And let me tell you why. Here's what was usually taking place. My mom and my sister were so excited about her dance routines that they were like all in that. Like this was the big deal. This was the big thing of every week for them. My mom would interrupt every other rhythm that we had going on in our lives to make sure my sister made it to dance recital. There were things I did too. I'm just using my sister as the illustration. <coughs> my mom would drop everything to get there uh, to engage in my sister's practices. They would talk about it. They would plan for it. You could tell in my mom's life that this was really important. You could tell in my sister's life this was really important. You know what was important to me? What was important to me was sitting there and scheming ways that I could screw with my sister during her dance recital. That was, that was what uh, got my attention. Uh, how, how could I get her attention while she's on stage and uh, knock her off her rocker? How, how could I mess with her while she was practicing? You can say that what was taking place in the, the liturgical rhythm of my soul was quite a bit different than what was taking place in the liturgical rhythm of my sister's soul and my mom's soul. <laughs> Loved rehearsals. And rehearsals were always a blast too because those things would last like six to ten hours. Dress rehearsal, right? Walking through it over and over and over and over, and it's like <gasps> it's over again. Dress rehearsals, and I'm sitting there the entire time rehearsing how I'm gonna jack with them during the performance. The reality is that every one of us rehearses something with our lives. The question is, what does your life rehearse? If your life is like a rehearsal on display for everybody to see, what does your life rehearse from deep within the liturgical rhythm of your soul? That's the question for us tonight. I would propose that if the life that we live here on earth is nothing but a shadow, or a dress rehearsal for the life that is to come. If you think about this, we don't live for this life here. If you're here and you believe in Jesus and you're a Christ follower, you don't live for everything we see in front of us. You live for a future hope. A future hope of perfection, a future place of no more mourning, no more crying, no more sin, no more devastation, no more death because all of that has been beaten, right? That's what we live for. That's the hope that we live for. So if this life reverse engineered backwards is just simply a dress rehearsal for where we're actually headed. It's a dress rehearsal for the hope that we have in Christ. And the question is... What does the dress rehearsal of your soul speak about the rhythms that are going on deep down inside? What longings, what longings and cravings and desires and loves and wants does the liturgy of your soul rehearse every day? Is your life a constant rehearsal of the gospel? Is your life a constant rehearsal of the gospel? Is it, is it marked by the rehearsal of the message of the cross of Christ? 
What does the rehearsal of your life say about the condition of your soul? Just drive that deep. Drill that down. Focus on that. Do not let that question get away from you this evening. This is what's really taking place in this passage. It's really a dress rehearsal of the soul. <coughs> it's a dress rehearsal uh, called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's what's taking place. It's kind of the scene that is set that Jesus is in. You might remember from last week we dealt with uh, all the plans that were being made, right? Somebody who was very close to Jesus, Judas, the betrayer, Satan entered into him. Scary moment. Scary moment if you think about it. Judas has been walking with Jesus every single day for a couple of years. Part of Jesus' inner crew, part of the 12. Dude was in church every week, every gospel community you could get to. Probably owned various different versions of the Bible. And yet, yet, sitting there right next to Jesus, Satan enters into Judas and Judas begins his plot to betray Jesus along with all the religious leaders who also, by the way, should have been Jesus' biggest fans, but they turned out to be his greatest enemies. That's the plan that was taking place. Jesus all along has got his own plan, right? His own plan. His plan of salvation, which is perfect and predetermined. And you nor I can do anything to stop that plan. There's nothing that you or I can say or do or feel that will change what God has pre-purposed to do since before the foundations of the world. Message that I love to preach. Here's Jesus getting ready to go to the cross. As we pick it up right here in this passage, he's getting ready to celebrate or rehearse the Passover. And as he gets ready to rehearse the Passover, actually gets ready to rehearse the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what he's doing is he's going to rehearse a couple of different things inside of that rehearsal. You know that every good rehearsal has a couple of different pieces and parts to it, moving pieces and parts. Inside of this rehearsal of, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, inside of that context, we're going to have the rehearsal of the Passover. We're going to have the rehearsal of the Kingdom. And we're going to have the rehearsal of the bread and the rehearsal of the cup. I know I'm doing this backwards for you guys. You don't read uh, right to left, so let me do it again. Okay, so I'll, just, I'll do it left to right for you, okay? So you've got big bullet point over here for all you guys that are trying to outline. This is the rehearsal of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And within that, you're going to have the rehearsal of the Passover. You're going to have the rehearsal of the Kingdom. And you're going to have the rehearsal of the bread and the rehearsal of the cup. And, and, and inside of all of that rehearsing, what Jesus is doing is attempting and working towards reorienting the souls of his disciples to see this entire thing that they're doing differently than they've ever seen it before. He's going to blow the doors off the way the disciples and the apostles have always experienced this. And what they're actually doing... And what we're going to do as we step into this passage is, is, is for a moment get to experience what it means to be in a gospel-centered community with Christ and his apostles. First thing that Jesus does is he rehearses the Passover, verses uh, 14 through 15, if you're still an outliner. 
Luke tells us this, says that when the hour came, Jesus reclined the table and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. All the preparations have been made, right? All the plans have been made. Jesus' plan was running its course and he was following it to the T. And what he was doing is he was following his plan to the cross where he would suffer for the sake of sinners. That's where Jesus is headed. And in fact, here's what I want you to think about. This is a mind blower for me personally. Maybe it'll affect you too. 24 hours from this passage, Jesus is going to die. Roughly 24 hours, roughly one day. And as Luke writes the next 24 hours of Jesus' life here on earth, he spends two chapters doing it, and it's going to take us about the next 14 or 15 messages to get through. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. We desperately need our souls reoriented and redirected from the current path that we uh, live in. Jesus is following his plan towards the suffering of the cross. And the interesting thing is that he's ready to suffer so that the price for sin can be paid. And it's not just the price for sin, it's the presence of sin and the power of sin. And I want you to think about sin this way. Categorically, this is an old theological teaching. Sin, number one, needs to be paid for. And number two, it has a presence in each of us. And number three, it holds a certain amount of power over us. And Jesus is ready to go to the cross to suffer so that he can crush all three of those. Not just the presence, not just the power, but also the price that you or I could never pay. He's ready to go there. He's ready to suffer for that. He's ready to suffer so that sin can be destroyed. Not just sin, but Satan, demonic power, as well as death, which is the penalty that you and I face for sin. He's ready to go there. And the words that he uses, he says, I have earnestly desired. Think about these words. I have earnestly desired. What did you earnestly desire recently? He's simply saying, I crave this. I want this so bad I can taste it. This is where I'm headed. I want to go here really bad. I want to go to the cross. There ain't a one of us in this room. There ain't a one of us in this room that is desiring to go and die on a cross for somebody else. Let alone, let alone the entire world. And this is what Jesus craves. You know what I crave? I crave hot wings. <laughs> I love hot wings, especially on game day on Saturdays. Man, I spent like four hours yesterday making hot wings in my kitchen because it was too cold outside to use my fryer. Now, most of us crave taking vacations every year if we could. We love taking vacations. Jesus' vacation he took to the cross. Most of us want to take vacations where we spend too much money on things we don't need and rack up debt that we can't pay off. Jesus, on the other hand, goes to the cross for you and I. That's his craving, is to go to the cross for you and I so that he could not put himself in debt, but so he could take you and I out of debt. That's the picture of what Jesus is doing. That's his soul. Reorient our souls. What is the liturgy of your soul doing right now? It's happening deep down inside of the ebb and the flow of your 
soul as you think about how you rehearse that liturgy through the habits and the patterns of your life. Now, in this rehearsal, the Passover that they're getting ready to celebrate, right, that they're, that they're doing together, this is nothing new. This is nothing new for the disciples. This is nothing new for the apostles. This is nothing new for Jesus. This is an annual thing that, that Jews and, and the Israelites would do every year. Ever since the events of Exodus, if you're familiar at all with the Bible, you know there is a book in the Bible called the Exodus. It means to get the heck out of here, uh, kind of. That's my version, right? This is when... This is when God took his people out of slavery. And ever since then, they had been annually rehearsing this Passover together as a community. They would rehearse God's powerful work of rescuing and redeeming his people from the clutches of Satan, sin, and the grave. Every year, Jesus would take, or the Jews would take their annual vacation. Jews from all over the country would head into this massive city called Jerusalem, where Jesus is now at, preaching in the temple daily, sleeping on the Mount of Olives at night, Mount of Olives at night, right? That's where Jesus is at. Every year, Jews would come to celebrate our annual festivals like Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, birthdays. Family reunions, we know all about annual festivals and the purposes and the reasons that we do those as Westerners, as Americans. But these guys, every year, they would come to Jerusalem. They would kill a spotless lamb. They'd roast it for eating. They would prepare unleavened flatbread. Stock up on some extra wine. Cook up some bitter-tasting herbs. And then they would gather in small groups, reclined around a table. They would like just kind of chill out, they would lay back, reclined. And they would eat and drink and they would rehearse the salvation that God had provided for them as he set them free from the bondage of Egypt. <coughs> if you haven't read the story in Exodus, you should go back and read it because really what that is itself is a rehearsal as well. It's a rehearsal of our slavery to sin. It's a rehearsal of the slavery that you and I live in every day. It's the rehearsal of the bondage that our souls live in. Pharaoh, Egypt, slave owners. Most of us in this room do not understand what it means to be in slavery. We live far detached from that. We can be empathetic. Don't get me wrong. But I think our understanding of what slavery really is falls terribly short of what's happening in this passage and what Jesus is rehearsing as they rehearse the Passover. And in Exodus, what God had done is he had set the Israelites free from being slaves to cruel taskmasters, abusive slave owners. He had set them free from the bondage of captivity. 
He had rescued them from the angel of death who had passed over their homes because they obediently splashed the blood of a perfect lamb on their doorposts. I want you to think about this for a minute. You're living in captivity. Suddenly your pastor comes to you and says, hey, by the way, uh, here's what's going to happen tonight. Just prophetically speaking, you need to go home and you need to slaughter a lamb. I want you to think about this. Entire families would do this together. There's no shielding children from the horror of what's about to take place. I want you to be able to catch the picture of this so that you know what it's really like. I'm not just going to be graphic for graphic's sake. I want you to understand that what they would do was they would grab a spotless lamb, wrestle this thing down the backyard and hold it and cut its throat and let the blood spill out into a basin. Entire families had to be a part of this so that their family could be safe. Moses had come to them and said, do this and then take some of that blood and put it over your doorpost because tonight, tonight, we're going to get set free. And this is how it's going to happen. It's going to happen this way. The angel of death is going to come on account of those who have held us in slavery. And that angel of death is going to take out the firstborn son in every family. And if you want to pay that price, then by all means, don't put that blood on your doorpost. But if you don't want your son to die, then put some blood on your doorpost and start praying like lives depend upon it and eat this feast together. and You'll be okay. This is a horrific night that takes place. All of the Israelites do just what Moses tells them to do. Slaughter the lambs, wipe the blood on the doorposts, sit in their homes and eat food the way that God had told them to obediently. And what God was doing was he was reorienting the liturgy of their lives. He was reorienting the liturgy of their souls in the midst of this taking place in Exodus. Imagine waking up the very next day to the wails and the horrific cries of everybody in Egypt around you because they chose not to believe and they paid the penalty of that sin and their oldest children were dead. That's a horrific time to live through. This marks your soul. This marks your soul deeply. This is what they're celebrating. This is what they're celebrating. It's God setting them free from the angel of death. <coughs> Connect this to the cross of Christ. Again, when he died at the cross, 24 hours later, one day later, the reason that the scriptures tell us that he does this is so that he can pay the price for you and for me so that we, by our faith in him, can be saved. And not just saved as in saved from the flames of hell, but saved and radically changed. This is what he's saying. What he's really saying is this. Hey, you have a soul deep down inside of you and the angel of death is going to come and sit on your front steps. And you, if you trust in me, you can stand in the doorway of the house of your soul and you can look at the angel of death and you can say, you're done. You got nothing on me because I've trusted in Christ. You've been beaten. You are dead. The angel of death is dead. Why? Because Jesus beat him with two sticks and a couple of nails and he gave his life and he poured out his blood and he, he broke his body for you and for I. This is the model and the example. This is what we rehearse. Does your soul rehearse that? Can you stand in the doorway of your soul and say, hey, the liturgy of my soul is preaching the gospel to me daily 
And that message of the gospel is that Satan's sin in the grave's got nothing on me. I don't live there anymore because I've been given new life. That's, that's what Jesus wants. This is why he was so passionate about heading there. This is why Luke records what Jesus says when he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What does this dress rehearsal of the Passover provoke? I use that word intentionally. Provoke. I want to provoke your thinking tonight, not just your thinking. I want to provoke your hearts, not just your hearts, but I also want to provoke your soul. When you walked in here tonight and you sat down, when you started hearing this message, where was your soul at? I want to provoke that soul of yours. What does this dress rehearsal, the Passover, provoke deep within the liturgy of your soul in these moments? The next thing that Jesus does in verses 16 through 18 is he rehearses the kingdom with his disciples. It's a pretty fantastic moment, really. Luke continues this description that he's given us of this dress rehearsal of our souls. And he does it by drawing our attention to Jesus' words regarding the kingdom of God in these verses, 16 through 18. He says, I tell you, this is what Jesus says, I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, circle that if you can. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What Jesus is doing here, let me just cement this in and drive it home. What Jesus is doing here is he's rehearsing the truths of the kingdom of God with his apostles. He's rehearsing the truth that God's kingdom is not of this world. He's rehearsing the truth that even though God's kingdom is made visible in this world right now, it's an already not yet principle. The already here visible principle is God's people in any space centered around God's message at any given time. That's the church, friends. That's the church. The church is the visible representation of God's kingdom on this earth. You may be thinking, I don't see all this in that passage. Just give me a minute, I'm going to get there. I just want to make sure I unpack a good theology of the kingdom before I get to where I want to get to. God's kingdom isn't already not yet. It's already because it's here, but we all know instinctively we don't live in perfection yet. We have not been perfected. It's not complete yet. It will be complete at what is known as the marriage supper or the marriage feast of the Lamb. Oh, connecting some dots now, right? Yeah, my little snarky, sarcastic way, right? Connecting a little bit of dots. Some of you are like, no, I'm not even sure I know what the marriage supper of the Lamb is. Here's the picture. You guys, some of you know I love this picture, right? Uh, here we are in this earth, on this earth the church it's called the bride of christ uh, every bride has to have a groom i know that's kind of strange for us dudes in the room right i know that's strange for, for a lot of us manly bearded masculine long-haired bald dudes the church is the bride of christ and jesus is the groom and one of the cool pictures of marriage is, is, uh, is, is the groom coming and getting his bride, right? Carrying her over the threshold of their home <laughs> for their honeymoon. Um, 
Jesus is coming back for his bride someday. We know that picture comes back on the big white horse with the tattoo on his leg. You know where I land on that whole theological thing. <coughs> Sword come out of his mouth, lightning bolts out of his eyes. It's a sweet passage. Clothes drenched in blood. This is the suit that he wears to his wedding feast, I guess. Takes the church to heaven with him. In heaven, the hope that we have, right? Heaven is our hope. Perfection. This place is not our hope. Heaven is our hope. In that place, there will be a feast, a reuniting feast. And what Jesus is simply saying here is, hey, hey, the kingdom is already not yet, but when it is completed, that's when I'm going to eat of this fruit. Well, what fruit is he talking about? What cup? That's why I asked you to circle the cup. Some of you might be thinking, oh, well, it's the cup of communion, right? He breaks the body thing, the bread, and then he passes the cup around and we do it all in these little... Yeah, I'm going to get back to this. There's more than one cup in this passage. That, that, should be, that should make it clear. There's more than one cup in this passage. There's more than one cup. There are some theologians who want to argue over it. Some scholars who want to argue over that. That's fine. They do whatever they want. But if you go back and you look at the way that the Jews would have celebrated this Feast of Unleavened Bread, they would have had multiple cups at the table. Now, I'm, I know that Brandon's a bit of a germaphobe, so the whole idea of passing the goblet around and sharing out of it is pretty stinking disgusting. I kind of agree. I'm not sure I want to do that either. But what Jesus is doing is he's holding up the first cup of this rehearsal. And what they're rehearsing is the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God, connect the dots, is a community. It's a family. It's a group of people who unite together by the power of the Holy Spirit through the message of the cross and the empty tomb. This is the family of God. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to share in this fellowship with the family of God until it's complete in heaven. It's the last time I'm going to get to drink out of this cup. And it's a challenging thing for us. It's a challenging thing for us because what Jesus is doing is he's rehearsing what it looks like to be in community with one another. That word communion simply means to commune, to live together, to be in fellowship with one another, to be in relationship with one another. You cannot have community without relationships. So many times I, I'll hear some people, ah, yeah, I got to go there. I'll hear some people like complain, like, ah, I can't go there. Yes, I can go there. Um, can I just go there? <laughs> like, okay, so I've got family members in my family. I'm going to take that route. This is safer, okay? I've got family members in my family, and they, and they feel super disconnected. I ain't seen them since last Christmas, right? And sometimes they get really upset. Like, why haven't I seen you since last Christmas? Man, I don't know. Like, we just, we haven't connected. There's no relationship there. There's no reciprocal relationship, right? We just see each other on Christmas. That's it. Within the community of God, within the family of God, there's got to be that relationship. And it's hard. There's a reason it's hard, because I, I don't get to pick you. And I mean, if we got to pick each other, so to speak, if God wasn't the one who did the picking and the placing, then what would we all pick in place? We, we, we would pick in place family members that look like us, talk like us, act like us, think like us. Because the reality is every one of us sitting here deep within the liturgical rhythms of our souls, we actually believe that we can do this better than God can. That's the reality. I mean, we also just admit that. All of us. I'll, I'll just admit that for us, okay? Like, we all believe that we really got the best corner on how to get this whole thing done. Even when we come around and say, no, no, we really suck at this. Now, deep down inside, if everybody else just thought like me, life would be a whole lot easier. Don't you think? 
Amen. All right. Yeah. See. <laughs> Well, that's, the re that's the reason that this picture of the rehearsal of the kingdom is so important. This is what Jesus is doing. Think about who he's sitting around the table with. Twelve dudes. Peter's going to deny him in less than 24 hours. Everybody else is going to scram, run, because they're afraid. The other dude that's sitting there is going to deny him, not just deny him, but betray him with a kiss. And if you look back to the cross-reference passages, you know whose feet Jesus washes? Takes off his robe of authority, kneels down, shows them the extent of his love. Who is that? Judas, who betrayed him. He washes his feet. Oh. Take that back. Take that back to all the relationships that you struggle with and the people you want to kill. <laughs> that's not what Jesus did. Jesus instead went to the cross. So he did. It's the picture of the family that he is building and instituting. It's a rehearsal of the kingdom. What does this dress rehearsal of the kingdom provoke deep within the liturgy of your soul today? Think about your tendency to walk in, in individualism and isolation. Think about your tendency to not be in those harder relationships where people think differently than you. Think about that. Verse 19. Verse 19, what Jesus does here is he rehearses the bread. He rehearses the bread. And here's where things take a bit of a shift, okay? Up until now, everything's been pretty kosher. Uh, no pun intended. Some of you will get that later. <laughs> I can hear you laughing all the way back there in the lounge area. Up until now, everything's been pretty kosher, but things are going to take a shift here. And this is fantastic. I keep using that word because it is. It's really flipping cool when you look at this. After Jesus rehearses the Passover and then he rehearses the kingdom, he then turns his attention to rehearsing the bread with them. Luke tells us <coughs> that Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Mind blower. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Rehearse this. What Jesus is saying here would have absolutely reoriented the liturgy of the souls of his apostles. Trust me. I want to try to unpack it for you. I hope that you'll see this just as clearly as I do when it's over. And normally when the unleavened bread was broken and eaten, the purpose of that was to remind the Jews of the brokenness that they had experienced as they fled the oppression of slavery, the abuse of slavery while in Egypt. But now what Jesus does is he reorients their minds. Like he takes them beyond that and says, hey, all of that, all that rehearsal for, for a long time, many years, up until today, <coughs> was actually meant to point you to me. It was meant to point you to me. It was meant to point you to Jesus, whose body was going to be broken and given as a gift on our behalf. <clears throat> Imagine the significance of this for his disciples. Imagine this moment as Jesus takes that bread. <clears throat> here's an argument that our <clears throat> leadership teams have had <clears throat> for quite a while. And here's the one time I get to say, see, I got gotcha. you. 
<laughs> I'm not Jesus, obviously, but there is some significance and some reason why it's really good in churches for somebody to stand up and take that bread and break it in two. There's a visual experience and rehearsal that Jesus is doing with his disciples. And if he did it with them, man, I just think it'd be really cool for us to do. That's my argument. The argument's over. Okay. Jesus is saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Rehearse this memory for me. Rehearse this memory of the gift of my body given willingly for your sake. Rehearse this memory of my body being broken for you. Rehearse this memory personally in community. These guys weren't siloed off all by themselves taking communion together. They did this while lounging around a table. Let me just say, the reason they were lounged around the table, like to kind of kick back in their recliner easy chairs, the reason was because it symbolized something and it rehearsed the fact that they had been set free. They were no longer hunched over in a grave or in a cell. They were no longer in slavery. They were free to eat this as they wished. It was symbolic of that. That's why they reclined at the table. And now Jesus is like, hey, this dress rehearsal, the breaking and the giving of the bread to each other is meant to reorient the liturgy of your souls. That's why I believe Jesus is doing this. It's meant to reorient our souls around the truth of Christ's body being given and broken for our sin. What does that dress rehearsal, the bread, provoke deep within the liturgy of your soul today? What does it make you think about when you see that picture? Jesus' body was given freely for you and I. Did nothing to deserve it. We did everything to deserve exactly the opposite. We did everything to deserve, deserve the wrath of God, which is what makes God's grace look so tasty. Verse 20, this final verse. I think, I think this final verse is, is where it's all at, honestly. I think this whole thing is good. I think this whole passage is fantastic. But I think this final verse, this is where I was struck. Like, I felt like I was struck a number of times, but when I was finally flattened in my study, it was in this one. Luke says that Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Listen to my words here. At first glance, as you read this, at first glance, for many of us in the West, for many of us that, that didn't grow up in the East, for many of us here in America, at first glance, this short statement doesn't seem to be any more significant than the affirming of Christ's blood being poured out for us. Now, if you can understand the scandal of what I just said, <coughs> you may be thinking about trying to throw me out of the pulpit. Think about what I just said. I'll say it to you again. <clears throat> Many of us in the West, the problem is when we approach this sentence and this statement is that, that, that we don't give it any more significance than just the affirming of Christ's blood being poured out for us. And honestly, that's true. It's what we should be doing. But I think what happens is we don't understand the concept of Jesus' blood being poured out for us. Our souls don't get deeply moved by this 
picture. And the reason is because we didn't have the same experience as Jesus' original listeners. Now, here's the interesting thing. <clears throat> you and I, as we look at this passage, we look back on it. Jesus' disciples had not yet experienced the cross. And in fact, every time Jesus was like, hey, I'm going to die. They were like, what? Huh? I'm going to die. What? I can't wait to die. What? You're not going to die. You're going to go sit on the throne. You're going you're gonna to redeem all of Israel. You're going you're gonna to knock out all the bad guys. No, I'm going to die. And I'm looking forward to it. Right? And they didn't get it. And the reason you know that they didn't get it is because they all scattered when the cross happened. Right? He had said this a number of times. They're looking ahead to something that they did not know was coming. They did not get it. We look back on it and we kind of get it. So it may feel like, well, I kind of get that better than they did. No, my point is you still don't get this, right? Here, let me use this illustration. I love really good Westerns. Y'all are like, you just made the turn from the blood to Westerns? I love really good Westerns. Grew up watching them. John Wayne, Clint Eastwood. In fact, I think my favorite, my favorites are Tombstone and White Earp. Both about White Earp. Tombstone because snarky and sarcastic and it's got great one-liners and quoters, right? It's a little bit shorter, but White Earp is my favorite, I think. It depends on the time of year, I suppose. Man, serious. I've been watching those movies for a long time. I will get my Colt 45. Well, it's not a Colt, but it's, it's, it's a Colt 45. I'll get my Colt 45 revolver out of my... Uh, <laughs> Out of my bedroom, it's got the old gunslinger holster. And the belt is full of um, bullets. And I will strap that baby on. And I will sit down in my chair. <laughs> and I will quote all the way through these movies. Right? I'll even pull that gun out. Like, spin it around, baby. Like, I know, like, when they're going to kill. I just know when these, because I've seen it thousand times. I've rehearsed these movies over and over and over again all my life, right? I'm looking back on something that I know has been happening. Imagine put yourself in the disciples' places. They had no clue how the movie ends. They had no clue. You and I, we think we have a clue, but what you and I haven't done is we haven't actually seen the movie. So I want you to think about the movie that actually plays out. When we read this passage, when we participate in the consuming of communion elements, we may rightly uh, like see images or paintings or movie clips depicting the bloody murder of Christ as his blood was poured out for our sins. But let me tell you, I do not believe that many of us here have a real understanding of what is taking place and the significance of what he has said to his disciples. Let me try to paint the picture for you. They've made their preparations. <clears throat> they went and they've actually slaughtered a spotless lamb as they rehearsed Exodus 24. And here's what happens in Exodus 24. If you go read it, Exodus 24, man, Moses walks up to Israel and he's like, hey, today we are going to engage in a mass slaughter. Mass slaughter, epic proportions. 
Get all the spotless sheep you can find, like one for every family, one for every person, however it went, and bring them out back, and we're going to slaughter them together. And this is what they did. All of Israel, all together in Exodus 24, gets all these little baby sheep, and they go out back, and they slaughter them, kind of like I described earlier. It was a stinking bloodbath. And what all the leaders of Israel did was they ran around with basins and they caught every drop of that blood as these animals bled out, struggled for their lives and died. And then, and then, this will knock your socks off. Everybody got together in their little community. And all the leaders of Israel took the blood in those basins and they threw half of it on the sacrificial altar. You know what they did with the other half of it? They threw it on the people. They threw the blood on the people. It was thrown on the sacrificial off offering or altar so that their sins could be atoned for. And then it was thrown on the people. It was a literal blood bath. They're being bathed in blood, being covered in blood. Blood was poured out and given at the sacrifice so that their sins could be atoned for. And it was thrown on them to cover their sins. Are you seeing this? When Jesus says, hey, my blood's going to get poured out for you, this should have rocked their freaking socks off. This is why after the horror of the cross... And after the victory of the empty tomb, which by the way, if the victory of the empty tomb is not true, the cross is meaningless. This is why after the victory of the empty tomb, this is why the church in the book of Acts sprouted. This is why the Bible has been being preached all these years. This is why the gospel is still being preached all these years. This is how entire lives and families are transformed by the blood of Christ, which was poured out at the cross for you and I. This is significant. This is what's being rehearsed. I want you to listen to what Moses said to the other people. When, he, when they threw all that blood on the people, this is what Moses says in Exodus 24. He says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Now listen to Jesus' words. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is saying, hey, the old things have passed away, the new things have come. New covenant. Old covenant passed away. I came to fulfill that. And the fulfillment of that was Jesus' blood poured out to cover your sins and be sacrificed for your sins. I paid the price and I covered it. And not only paid the price, but it murdered it. Murdered the penalty and the power and the presence of your sin. And it also covers you. Here's the thing. There is no sheep alive killed by human hands that could do that for you. All of that was done to look forward to Christ. Only Christ could do this. Why? Because he's God himself. God literally comes out of his deep affectionate love for you and gives his perfect life for you and I. The one whom we've made war against comes and gives himself for us. Pours out his blood on our behalf. That is the significance. <coughs> wow. One scholar says this, says making the covenant was a messy, bloody business. But it was not signed like a contract. It was sealed in blood. This was a sign of God's mercy for the blood on the altar showed that the people had forgiveness for their sins while the blood on the people themselves showed that they were inclined, included in the covenant of salvation. This 
rehearsal of the pouring out of blood was a messy, gruesome business. Now Jesus is saying, hey, my blood is the new covenant that is poured out for you. It's a new agreement. My blood that I give freely covers your sin. My blood that I give freely pays the price for your sin. My blood that I give freely washes away your sin and makes you white as snow. This new covenant is made holy by Jesus and is offered freely to you despite your war against him. This is meant to reorient the rehearsal of the liturgy of your soul. What does your soul rehearse daily? Is it the message of the gospel? Because if it is, then these four key components will be ebbing and flowing throughout your soul. Passover. Death comes to visit you, to tell you that you're worthless, to tell you that you failed again, to tell you that you're going to die. And if you trusted in Christ, you can say, no, I don't think so. I stand victorious over you because I've trusted in the king who gave his life for me. I've been united with Christ through my faith. And through the work of the cross and the empty tomb, I have been victorious over you. You can rehearse that Passover in your soul daily. You can rehearse you can rehearse the kingdom by being in community and fellowship and relationship with other believers who have trusted in Christ as well. You can rehearse the broken body of Christ as you remember, as you think about, as you let your soul get surgically worked on by the picture of that broken body on that cross. And finally, you can rehearse the cup being poured out for you, the cup being Christ himself, whose blood has been thrown all over you so that you can be covered. Is that the rehearsal of your soul? Is that the rehearsal of the liturgy of your soul? As I wrap this up, I want to wrap up with a quick story and we'll be done. Sorry I kept you guys so late tonight. <coughs> man, as I was uh, studying this passage, man, I, uh, one of the things I don't deal with well is interruptions. I probably confess that to you guys all the time, so I'm just going to confess it again. I don't deal well with interruptions, and I'm, it was Friday sometime, and I'm trying to finish this message. I'm behind because I can't get my, my thoughts straight. And um, I get a phone call from my wife. And my first thought was, I'm not going to answer it. And then I kind of feared for my life, so I thought I better answer it. <laughs> <laughs> I answered the phone, and, uh, and uh, it was her calling to let me know that, um, that in the mess of whatever had, was going on on Friday, um, uh, one of our kiddos had um, gotten forgotten at school. Uh, Gracie was sitting at school. It's 5 o'clock, and she was out at 3. And so we had just biffed it, and, and so I run out of the house, hop in my Tahoe, I take off. And honestly, I got a bit of a chip on my shoulder, okay, because I don't deal well with interruptions. And, uh, and as I'm driving, uh, I cr I'm cranking the radio, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to use this word in church. Okay, I was pissed. Right? I, was, I was angry. And I'm listening to this song. And Brandon will love this because uh, I've been listening to this red CD for quite a while. And there was the lyrics of this one song. And, and uh, uh, the lead singer guy, he, he simply says this, love should leave a mark. 
And I felt like I got hit in the face with a two by four. Love should leave a mark. That really is, I think, the essence of this passage. Christ's love should leave a mark on your soul and my soul. And in the midst of me, liturgically, in an organized way, writing about the liturgy, liturgy of our souls, God chooses to sovereignly show me once again how short I fall of His grace and His glory and how much I am in great need of Him. Love should leave a mark and it should mark the rehearsal and the liturgy of your soul so deeply that the way that you live your life from that point forward should be radically different. How has the rehearsal of the liturgy of your soul been impacted as you've heard the preaching of this message? And I hope you walk away changed. I'm going to pray as our music team comes forward. Jesus, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this message. And thank you for this passage. God, thank you for these very patient people who uh, give me the privilege to preach to them each week. And, and uh, Lord, uh, I just pray, God, that you would take um, this theme and this passage uh, and really mark our souls with it. Mark our souls with the love of Christ at the cross. It's, as your blood was poured out, as your body was broken, as you sat in community with your disciples, as you remind us of what it means to have death come and sit on our doorstep and for us to be able to say, I don't think so, you're out of here. God, I pray that you would uh, continue to help us to rehearse that. And Lord, as we actually step into physically rehearsing that here in a minute uh, through communion, um, Lord, I pray that you would mark our souls with your love. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Hey, as we close, as we close, we're going to worship. There'll be a few of us near the front to uh, pray with you as well if you have any needs. Um, but then we'll also engage in communion, man. If you're with us, and uh, you don't have to be a member of our church. Uh, I say it every week. You don't have to be a member of our church to engage in communion. It's simply just the rehearsing of what we just studied. And um, you do need to be a believer, though. To, to, not, to, to not believe, to not trust in Christ, and to do this would be like a mindless religious activity, and we're not into that. Um, if that's you and you're here, that's cool. We're glad you're here. I don't want to put extra pressure on you. Um, you may have come to faith in these moments. You may just be like, you know what? I've got lots of questions, but I'm trusting in Christ now to save me from the penalty, the power, and the presence of my sin. That could happen now in these moments. That's between you and the Lord. If that's happened, you're invited to the table to enjoy this feast together. Um, if you haven't yet, that's okay. I'd love to pray with you, talk with you, answer questions. Um, so there'll be two of us near the front to serve you. Uh, thanks for being here tonight, guys. Love you a bunch. Thanks for letting me preach. Let's stand. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.